Thank you, Kendall. Thank you, A-Team. I think we got some A-Teamers here today, yeah? You there, guys? Yeah. Well, we're gonna turn to God's word. Before we do, I just wanna pray and give thanks to the Lord for the way uh, our A-Team shapes our life together as a church. It makes us richer and better uh, in who God designed us to be as a church. And uh, I'll just reiterate too, if you have time availability, come and see the drama on April 2nd. It's gonna be a blast, all right? Let me pray, and then let's go to God's word together. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in the A-team. We thank you for the way that their love for you is evident. Thanks for the way they shared with us today in ways that make us want to love you more. We thank you for the way they shape our life together, our, our kids, our students. They uh, all shape our body and shape our life together as a church and make us more like you. And so we pray that that would continue to be the case. So thank you for our brothers and sisters. Lord, would you, now as we turn our attention to your word, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth and the power of your spirit? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we are coming to a new series. We finished up Galatians last week, and we are entering into a series now we call The Power of the Cross as we lead up to the, the three weeks now uh, leading up to Easter and including Good Friday. We're going to spend some time reflecting on the cross, its work, what it does, and how, does, how it accomplishes that. Here's how you might want to think about this series. Uh, how many of you have been shopping for a diamond before? Anybody shop for a diamond? All right, so some of you shop for a diamond. And when you do, you know that one of the things you're looking at is the cut of that diamond. And the cut of a diamond does not make the diamond more brilliant, but what it enables it to do is refract light in such a way that its brilliance shows, right? And so when you look at the cut of a diamond, uh, what you're looking at is a way to help light move through that diamond in such a way that the, its brilliance, which is already there, is revealed. And so as we look at the work of the cross sort of up close in a detailed way, I want you to think about it like looking at the cut of a diamond. We are attempting to examine the cross in such a way that we're seeing all the different ways the light of God refracts through it and shows the glory of God and his brilliance in it. And so we're gonna do some, uh, what may feel like a little heavy lifting. We're gonna have to turn our, you know, engage our brains on as we think about the work of the cross. So this week, we're gonna think about the work of the cross as a work of substitution, and then next week, we're gonna think about it as a work of propitiation, which I know is a big word, but we'll make it really simple and plain uh, next week. And then we're gonna think about the, uh, the work of the cross as a work of reconciliation. And then on Good Friday, we'll think about the work of the cross as a work of redemption. And then we'll come together on Easter Sunday and think about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection in light of the power of the cross and what it accomplished. And let's remind ourselves, those two things always go together. The cross without the resurrection is hopeless but the cross with the resurrection is hope-filled and joyful and life-giving. So as we think about that together, here's what I was thinking about this week. As we think about the work of the cross as a work of substitution, it got me thinking about how often this idea of substitution shows up just in common culture, so much so that we might suggest that it really tends to resonate with the human heart. And there's a reason for that. So just think with me, if you will, about different movies or pieces of literature that you've seen where this idea of someone taking someone else's place comes in and how you're impacted by it, often at an emotional level. So we might reference Katniss Everdeen, yes? In The Hunger Games, right? If you've read that book, she takes her sister's place, right? And volunteers as trivia. All right, so some of you are Hunger Games fans. You've read it, there you go. So we got Katniss Everdeen. You've got characters uh, like, I mean, if this is more your cup of tea, Iron Man at the end of Endgame. You may not feel like a work of substitution, but what is he doing when he sacrifices himself? 
He's taking the place of all the others around him so that they wouldn't have to sacrifice themselves. So you see it even in Marvel movies, in common culture. You see it in places like Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, giving himself up for Edmund to the White Witch. You see it in movies like Glory, where the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment volunteers to be the first to go up a narrow isthmus towards Fort Wagner essentially sacrificing themselves so that other regiments can come behind and not sacrifice their own lives. If you know the story of glory in the 54th Massachusetts. Or you see it in, I mean, if this is, if you're a Disney fan, how about Mufasa sacrificing himself for Simba, right? Giving himself up, taking his place down in the valley as the, I think it was wildebeest who were running down through the valley. Sacrifice or substitution is such a common theme in our culture. And the reason it's so common is because it resonates with the human heart. All of those stories are told because they impact us, yes? They have an audience and storytellers recognize if I portray some version of substitution where someone takes someone else's place in a sacrificial way, that gets people, it grabs them. Now, let me suggest to you why that happens. Why, I mean, have you ever asked, why does that sort of universally resonate across cultures, across ages, this idea of someone taking someone else's place, bearing a penalty in their place, taking, you know, sacrificing themselves so that someone else can live or someone else can be okay, tends to resonate with people. And one of the things I'd encourage you to ask, when you see something that universally resonates, ask why. What is it in, the, in human nature that causes that to resonate? Here's what I'll tell you. The reason substitution resonates, I would argue, is not because of something, not because of something intrinsic to the idea of substitution. It's actually something in us. It's the fact that we need a substitute. And because all human beings need a substitute, and that's buried within us, it causes something in our heart to resonate or go off when we see substitution. It's like a tuning fork. You know how a tuning fork works, right? It's set to a certain note. When you play that note, the frequency of that note moving through the air causes the tuning fork to go off. Well, you and I have a tuning fork in our heart. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 tells us that. Did you know that? It says, God has hidden eternity in the hearts of men, yet not so that they can understand what he has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, what he's saying there is that there is something in God's design of humanity that causes eternal things to be like a tuning fork in their heart. When they encounter eternal things, humans, that tuning fork goes off and something resonates because we were made for those eternal things. We were made to recognize them. We were made to see our need for them. And so when we talk about substitution, the reason I would argue you see it so often in film, in literature, in storytelling, in our culture, and in every other culture around the world is because God has made us in such a way that that is an eternal thing. The idea of substitution, the idea of someone taking someone else's place. And you might suggest, why then? Let's, let's be really honest about the human condition. Why then, if this eternity is hidden in our hearts, yet not in such a way that we can understand everything God has done from the beginning to the end, some of it remains hidden, clouded to us, and yet the tuning fork is going off in our hearts. Why is it that everyone doesn't see in the cross of Jesus this great act of substitution, the greatest the world has ever known? Why doesn't everybody see it for what it really is? Why does 1 Corinthians chapter one tell us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And Paul goes on to say that Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we treasure the cross of Christ. Foolishness to those who are perishing, to the world and its value system. The cross seems like a foolish thing. Well, how do I reconcile those two things? Eternity hidden in our hearts, yet the cross being perceived as foolishness rather than being seen as the true wisdom that it is. And the answer is this, is that sin hides our eyes, hides from our eyes those eternal things. And so there's always those two things competing in the hearts of humankind. There is both the eternity for which we were made, which God has hidden in our hearts, and our sinful natures which prevent us from seeing it and which have to be battled against. Now, I say all that because as we come to think about the cross as a work of substitution and try and dig a little deeper into that, what I want you to understand is there is in you, if you haven't believed in Jesus, there's going to be something in you that is going to push against this And yet also I would suggest something in you that is the eternity hidden in your heart that will also be compelled by it. And I'll encourage you to to weigh those things carefully. For those of us who have believed in the cross of Jesus, for us, it has become the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. And as you reflect upon it, then with that barrier removed and the spirit present, I want you to pay attention and I pray, and I hope, I pray for you this week, that that tuning fork in your heart, go off. So I have one simple application for us. We're not going to spend the next three weeks thinking about do this, do that, do this. I just want us to treasure the cross of Christ more. I want us to treasure it for all it's worth. And sometimes it helps to get really up close to something to be able to see it accurately. You know, whenever I uh, am coaching kids in basketball, when there's a difference between, it, it, think about it this way. I can say to a kid who has a ball in their hand, I want you to get that ball in that basket, right? And that's a very broad thing. It's a very big thing. And in general, that's a pretty good principle for them to be introduced to. But often what we'll do is we'll break that down into how do you get it in the basket? So we'll talk about our shooting form. We'll talk about how to read and react to a defense. If their left foot is back, then you jab step this way and then you move back and you, you wanna load step to move that way. This is all really exciting information for you all, isn't it? But we're getting into the details of how to read and react to it at the minute level of a defender's feet and how they're situated all so that you know how to react in the details of the game so that you can get the ball in the basket. And as we reflect upon the nature of the cross of Christ, we're essentially trying to get a a zoomed in view of it so that we would treasure it more. That's our aim. That's our goal. All right, everybody with me for that? All right. So let's look at three things today uh, as we think about the work of the cross as a work of substitution. Okay. The first thing we want to see is that there's a substitution in Christ's perfect obedience The second thing is that there's a substitutionary work in his penalty bearing. And then lastly, I want you to see that when we talk about substitution, the scriptures talk about exchanges that take place as a result of substitution, right? So God doesn't just leave us, doesn't just take something from us. He gives things to us. And we'll talk about that kind of exchange understanding. And I pray that we're enriched by it. So let's look at that first thing the work of substitution or substitution through perfect obedience. This is the first part I want you to see before we even get to the cross. What we have to understand is that Christ isn't just our substitute 
in bearing our penalty on the cross, which we're gonna talk about in a moment, he's our substitute in all of his life. So when we say that Christ is our substitute, one of the things that we're saying is not just that he died the death we should have died, we are saying that he lived the life we should have lived. So that from the moment Christ was born and drew his first breath, he was from that moment forward demonstrating perfect obedience so that he was living a life of perfect obedience as a substitute for our failure to live a life of perfect obedience. He wasn't just a substitute in death, he was a substitute in life. Does that make sense? Now, the the power of this is not just he had to live a perfect life so that his penalty bearing work could be done on the cross so that he wasn't dying for any of his own sin, but rather could die for yours and for mine. That's deeply important. But I want you to see the length of this substitution. It's one thing to think about Christ as our substitute in the hours that he was on the cross bearing a penalty and then it was done. But when you understand that from the moment Christ entered into the earth as an infant, from the moment the incarnation came about, Christ was serving as our substitute from that moment and every moment. Every act of obedience, every thought he ever thought, every uh, decision of his will, every motive, every action he took, every word he spoke stood in as a substitute for the life I should have lived but did not. And he lived it perfectly. When we understand that he was serving as our substitute and never failed to be a perfect substitute of obedience for our lack of obedience, the length of time over which he served as our substitute is absolutely astounding, isn't it? He is our substitute, not just in death, but in life. This is what Romans 5, 19 talks about. He's talking about Adam and how we all, because of our forefather Adam, became sinners by nature, sinners, part of a fallen human race. And it says this in Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. The second Adam rebelled against the Lord, we all became part of a fallen human race and sin entered into the world. This is in the same way that we were all sentenced into condemnation and sin through Adam's disobedience. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you see what, they, what Paul is doing and flipping that on its head? Now in this context of this passage, he's talking as the climax of that work of obedience, the cross, as, as Christ ultimate act of obedience to the Lord. But he's not just talking about the cross. He's talking about the entire life leading up to the cross as a substitute for our lives. So that's the first thing I want you to see. His perfect obedience of thought, word, and deed before the Father is standing in as a substitute, taking your place and my place for the life we should have lived. That's the first type of substitution we need to understand before we turn now to the second one, which is substitution through penalty taking. Substitution through penalty taking. Now we're gonna spend the majority of our time here, all right? So let me just walk you through a few texts. If you have a Bible, go with me to Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. Romans five, six through eight. That's the text we're gonna look at. So if this is not the central idea of substitution, it is at least the climax of it. Now, I want to say that often one of the criticisms of thinking about the work of the cross through a substitutionary lens is people will say it makes God seem very violent, uh, that he has to pour out wrath or a penalty upon people, uh, and it makes God 
sorry, and it seems very sort of rational, logical. There's a, there's a legal metaphor at play when we talk about substitution because we're saying that our justification, our right legal standing before God, like a courtroom scene, uh, that in order for us to be declared, declared innocent, there was a penalty that had to be paid. And you can see how that kind of alludes to a courtroom kind of idea, yes? But the thing I want you to understand is whenever I read those criticisms, they don't honestly make a, they don't hold a lot of weight with me. I always think, yes, but if there's a penalty to be bared, then it makes sense to think rationally about that. But also think about all those stories we just referenced and the power of a narrative of substitution. When you think about someone taking your place, I don't want you to lose sight of, even as we talk about some things that might seem slightly technical in nature in terms of the theological weight or freight with them, I don't ever want, it's not mutually exclusive from thinking about it in a way that compels the heart. I want you to picture, hey buddy, (laughs) keep doing laps, that's awesome. I got, I got little ones too, man. When they're runners, it's, it's a lot of fun. So when we think about, <clears throat> I, want you to, I want you to actually put yourself in the garden for a moment. So never just think in terms of technicalities. When we talk about Christ as our substitute, the night before he was, the night he was betrayed, he prayed drops of blood in the garden and he waited. Now I want you to imagine that should be you. You should have been in that garden. You should be the one begging to not go to the cross. You should be the one sweating drops of blood in agony over what's to come. You should be the one thinking about the swords and clubs and torches coming in the hands of guards. You should be the one that put the cha- had the chains put on their wrists. You should be the one led away and beaten and stripped and humiliated. You should be the one having the nails driven through your hands and through your feet. You should be the one to have the spear thrust into your side. You should be the one agonizing to take a single breath until you died of suffocation. You should be the one and I should be the one. Never lose sight of the narrative of substitution, even as you think about the theology of substitution. Does that make sense? He took your place. Everything he endured, you and I should have endured. And if we have any sort of sense at all. That's frightening, isn't it? Think about the fear you would have felt to be there that night. Think about the pain, the anguish. That was ours. And so when we say he was our substitute in bearing a penalty for us, what we're saying is he took our place. Let me show that to you in the text. In Romans chapter five, verses six through eight, we find these words. It says, for while we were still weak, 
at the right, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the phrase I want you to get. We're gonna hear it again in verse eight and in a slightly different way. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there's two things being emphasized in this passage, that he died for us, for the ungodly, and that he did it while they were still sinners or while we were still sinners, right? So the emphasis that he didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait for us to pull ourselves together. He didn't wait for us to ask for him to do this for us. He took initiative to do it. That's important to see. But our emphasis today is on that phrase, for. So that Greek word there is the word huper. And it means to take the place of. That's what it means. So when we see that word for, it doesn't just mean as our representative. It doesn't mean he died for the ungodly as a good example to us. It doesn't just mean that he did that uh, because he thought it was a good idea. When it says he died for the ungodly, you can translate that for as he died in the place of the ungodly. He died in the place of us. That's what I want you to see there. And that very simple word, that three letter word for, it means in the place of. So as we read that, what Romans 5 is teaching us is that the reason he died was because somebody else needed to die and he took their place. Now, the second question or the natural question that should come for us, I'm just gonna walk you kind of step-by-step step here, is why was that substitution necessary? Okay, he died as a substitute. He died in the place of someone else, the ungodly, the sinner, us. So why did he, why was that necessary? And the answer for that, well, let's look at 1 Peter 3.18, because again, it, it states it really simply. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, again, it's the four word that I want you to pay attention to. This is a different Greek word. It's not the word huper in the place of, it's the word peri, because. That's what that word means, because. So when it says he died for sins, he suffered once for sins. We're gonna talk about that once in a moment. When it says he suffered once for sins, it's saying he suffered once because of sins. In other words, because sin existed, he had to suffer. So if we start with Romans 5 and we say he had, to, he had to be a substitute, he had to take the place of those who were ungodly, we'd ask why was that necessary? Because sin existed, so his suffering then was on behalf of it or required it. Now go the next step to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, one of the more famous texts in Scripture. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. In other words, the penalty that sin causes or results in is death. Therefore, now go back up through 1 Peter 3 and Romans 5. Christ was serving as our substitute because we owed a penalty for our sin and we couldn't pay it. And he became our substitute. He took it for us. Now, friends, here's what I want you to see. Sometimes when people object to this, I already referenced um, people in certain schools of thought um, that will suggest that, well, I, you know, we kind of don't like the, how, what light this paints God in as if he, he wants to save, but he's also full of this anger. And like, and the reason that objection 
The reason people make that objection is because they want to weigh one part of God more heavily than they do another. They want to make God more one thing than he is another thing. But here's what you and I need to understand. We might ask the question, having gone through all those steps, we might say, why doesn't God just let go of the penalty? I mean, I, we do it for our kids all the time, right? They, they deserve a penalty. We say, I'm gonna give you grace and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna penalize you this time. I'm gonna let go of it. So why doesn't God just do that? Why doesn't God just say, I won't require the penalty. I'll just, I'm God, I can decide. So I'll just let it go. Here's what you need to understand. For us to, to say, why doesn't God just do that is for us to ask, why doesn't God be something other than what he is? That's what we're saying when we say that. God is who he is and he does not change. He is a God of perfect love and he is a God of perfect justice. And to suggest that there shouldn't be a penalty necessary or the penalty should be relinquished in a way different than how God caused it to be relinquished or removed from us is to say, God, stop being God. Be other than what you are. God cannot be other than what he is. Do you understand? Do you know that? Nor should we want him to be. We delight in all that God is. So the substitutionary work of the cross is born out of the love and justice of God. It's born out of his very nature. The substitution is necessary because God is just and he will not leave sin undealt with or unpaid for. The substitution of the cross is also born out of the love of God who determined to not cause us to have to bear the penalty ourselves, but in love sent his son so that he might bear the penalty for us. Does it make sense that it's born out of the nature of God and who he is? I want you to grab hold of that because as you find folks who question why a substitution would be necessary, everything goes back to the very nature of God himself, which is central to what we believe. Now, let me hit a couple of other things. We talked about why the penalty exists there in the nature of God. The two more things, or I guess three more things I wanna point out is one, Jesus was a willing substitute. Sometimes you'll hear, I think it is kind of going away, but you'll hear in certain circles, the idea that to think about the cross as substitution and God putting his wrath on his son is a form of divine child abuse. That's foolishness. And the reason is from eternity past, the scriptures testify that it's not just God the father that planned redemption in the way it would come about, but God the son that planned it. Jesus was a willing substitute for us. He was not held against his will and forced to be a substitute by the Father. Let me show this to you in one verse, all right? In uh, Galatians chapter one, verse three through four, we just studied this text to, uh, as we went through Galatians, but listen to it. In one verse, we'll see the Father and the Son. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he gonna say about Jesus? Who gave himself, not was given, but who gave himself, do you see it, church? Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, where's the father? According to the will of our God and father. What Paul is so brilliantly putting together in two verses is both the son's place in the planning and execution of redemption and the father's place in the planning and execution of redemption. And the clear picture he's painting is not one of, oh, you're making me do this. I don't want to do this, but rather of God in his absolute unity, but the distinction of persons that he holds within his own being planning redemption and executing it in the way that pleased him to do it. And the son was a willing substitute 
not one held against as well. That's important to see. Now, the second thing I want you to see here is that Jesus is not just a willing substitute. He's a sufficient substitute. He's a sufficient substitute. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the scripture that I read to you just a minute ago, let me read it again. For Christ also suffered, how many times? Once for sins, once for sins. Now I'm, in, uh, I'm reading through the Bible this year in a year and I'm in the portion where I'm in the Old Testament law, right? So I'm reading Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as you read that, if you've ever read through those books of the Bible, one of the things that stands out as you read it is how many sacrifices are being made. I mean, you read through it and you're like, oh my goodness, there's a sacrifice on the Sabbath. There's a sacrifice on this holy day and for this feast. And then if someone's unclean, they need to offer a sacrifice. And then sometimes it's these birds and sometimes it's a ram and then it's a lamb and then it's a bull and then it's an ox. And it's just sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. Again, again, again. There are some times where it says, you need to bring seven bulls. You need to bring seven lambs. (coughs) You need to bring seven rams. It is sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And as you read through that Old Testament law and the sacrificial system, you know what you're supposed to see and think? It's very obvious none of these sacrifices are getting the job done. They have to keep going over and over. As I read it, I just imagine spending my year, it seems like I would do nothing but kill lambs. I'm just going to have to sacrifice things over and over again in, a, in some way of trying to deal with sin. And then Christ comes and we are told he makes one sacrifice and it will never need to be done again. Should he not return and a thousand years from now, human beings are still walking the earth, his sacrifice will still be sufficient. There will never be a time where God turns to Jesus and says, I need you to go do that again. You know, you and I, we get state inspections, right? And emissions inspections. And we get that sticker on our car and we stop looking at it. And then two months after it's expired, we realize, "Uh uh-oh, this is no longer good. I better get my car in to get the inspection done. I better get my car in to get the emissions check done so that I don't get a ticket because eventually the sufficiency of that work runs out. And I have to have it done again. And everything in life is like that. Everything runs out. You go buy new clothes, eventually they run out. Every, you go for a doctor's checkup, you need to go again the next year. Some of you are like, I never go. Yes, you need to go again. Right? Like you have to keep going back because the work runs out. Christ's work is the only work that never runs out. It's completely sufficient. Once for all. Never again. The father will never ask for it again. The son will find no need to do it ever again. You and I never need another sacrifice, another substitute to be made. Now, when you read through your Old Testament and you see sacrifice, 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 and then you go and you read, he did it once and it's done. Aren't you amazed? What an amazing work of substitution. Who is this? that he can give himself once and it's completely sufficient to cover every sin that was yet to come and to cover every sin that had already been done. Think about the sufficiency of a work where we continue to live and add sin upon sin daily, don't we? And his blood is sufficient for that. 
it's sufficient for the sins I'll commit tomorrow and the next day. Doesn't mean I treat them lightly. Doesn't mean I just go, sure, whatever. But it is sufficient. Sufficient payment one time forever. When we think about Christ's work of substitution, it is absolutely astounding. And the last thing I want you to see about his substitution is penalty taking. Is I want you to see how it now, um, and this is gonna help us go to the exchanges thing that we talked about. I want you to see how it absolutely changes your disposition in life. So I think some of us live like God is disposed towards us in a sort of a miserly way that he, he'll kind of just give us just enough. What I want you to see is that in his substitution for us, in his penalty bearing for us, Christ was opening the path for God to be disposed in generosity towards us. Look at how the scriptures connect this. Romans chapter eight, verse 32. You've heard me say before, I think this is the richest promise in all of scripture, which I know is a very bold and grand claim, but it is pretty significant. Romans eight thirty-two says this, he who did not spare his own son, that's the cross, yes, you see it? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what the cross and this substitution that Christ has made for us, do you see what it does? He's saying, because Christ was your substitute in penalty bearing, you should understand that God is disposed to be generous towards you. How will he not also with him, he's already given us the son, what's that the guarantee of, that he will graciously give us all things. In other words, what he's saying is there is nothing which God would determine would be good for you to have that he will not give to you. If you have a mindset that says God withholds or God only gives so much or God gives a little bit and sort of like carrot and stick kind of idea that God is gonna give me just enough to kind of keep me wanting him. No, God delights to pour out rich blessings upon you. Everything that he deems is good for you to have in the timing which he deems it good for you to have it, he gives. He withholds nothing. And the cross is how that came to pass through that work of substitution at the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what I mean when I say it's maybe the richest promise in scripture? It's pretty astounding. Okay, now we could spend all day on this. We're just gonna hit a couple of these quickly because what I want you to see now is the exchange that these, this work of substitution has brought to us, okay? So instead of thinking that Christ bore our penalty on the cross that we owed for our sin and then kind of left us in a neutral position before God, what I want you to see is that there's an exchange that took place at the cross. And when we talk about substitution in the scriptures, we're usually and often talking about a ridiculous number of, of exchanges that took place. He took our penalty, and then we receive something in exchange, not just neutrality towards God, but something even richer, something even better. So let's look at a couple, okay? We're just gonna do three, all right? So he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. That's the first exchange. He took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. Again, a pretty 
well-known text. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. I want you to get that language because Paul is saying something supernatural and radical in that one word, be. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, here's what I want you to see about this exchange. I, I, I actually don't have sufficient words to explain what's happening here because this, what was just described there, gets past language. I'm deeply convinced of it. What Paul is describing is a supernatural reality that in the cross of Jesus, when the cross took place, God did not just say, you're going to pay the penalty for their sin. He actually said without Christ in any way becoming sinful, he placed the sin upon him in such a way that in the eyes of God, when he looked at Christ, he saw the guilt of our sin as as belonging to Christ. So he saw our guilt and our sin as belonging to him while Christ remains sinless because he does not sin, amen? He is without sin and remains without sin forever, yet in some supernatural, miraculous way in the eyes of God, who is not naive and he didn't get duped and he wasn't just like, I don't understand what happened here. He caused our sin to belong to and be on and the guilt of it to be on Christ. And if that weren't enough, he then took this glorious, beautiful, light righteousness that belonged to Christ and he transferred it to us so that when he looked at us, he saw as an absolute supernatural reality that that righteousness is ours. It's astonishing. It's miraculous. It gets beyond words. That's the best I can do, and it's not even close because something radical happened at the cross. There was an exchange that took place, so much so that God in his word tells us, he who knew no sin became sin. I looked at him as the owner of that sin. And you became righteousness. I looked at you as if you are the owner of that righteousness. And he continues to look at you that way. That's how your father sees you clothed in righteousness at the very depths of your being. And again, God is not naive. He is not duped. He is not sitting back failing to see our continual daily sins. And yet that's how powerful the substitutionary work of Jesus is that he still says, you are righteous. You are righteous. You are clothed in it bathed in it, saturated in it. It's who you are. That is very different than he took my penalty and I stand over here in some neutral state. No, there has been a great exchange that changes our lives forever. The second exchange, he took our wounds, we received his healing. He took our wounds, we received his healing. Isaiah 53, five and six. 
most famous Old Testament text, 700 plus years before Jesus was born. These words are written in prophecy about him and his death. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. So again, he's saying that again, there's the substitution. He paid the price for our sins. Two different ways he says it. Then upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And we'll talk about that exchange, punishment for peace when we talk about reconciliation. And with his wounds, we are healed. And again, what Isaiah is saying is it's not just that the Messiah would come and he would take wounds from us or for us, the wounds that we deserved. He's saying he exchanges those wounds for healing. How often do we think about wounds from our past and how they cause us to do certain things today and now because that wound has not been healed? One of the things that we see when we see the cross is that our deepest wound, the wound of sin, has been taken from us. Do you you understand? Whatever wound came from your family of origin, whatever wound came from your past, none of it compares to the wound that sin had caused in you and Christ has taken that wound and in place of that gaping wound, he has given you healing. Now you get to live in the healing and the wholeness that comes from that healing that he has exchanged for you at the cross. He wasn't just a substitute in wound bearing. He was a substitute who exchanged wounds for healing. Last one. And again, we could, there's so many of these in scripture, we could go on and on. But he took our curse and we received his blessing. Galatians 3, again, the book we just got done studying, verses 13 and 14 says this, says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's a quote from Deuteronomy in the law where it says any person who is hanged on a tree and the cross is being hanged on a tree, any person is considered cursed by God, that God despises them and has caused his curse to fall upon them. They're cursed by God. It says he took that curse And then, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, the blessing of Abraham is Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and make your name great and make you a great nation so that I might bless all the nations of the earth through you. And the fulfillment of that promise was to send Jesus, was that all the nations of the earth would be brought in, could be brought in through faith in Jesus into the family of God. And so when Paul says, so that they would, would, would receive the blessing of Abraham, what he's saying is the blessing of a restored relationship with God, to be brought into the family of God. And so when we read that, what we're hearing is at the cross in the substitutionary work, Christ took our curse and he exchanged it for a blessing so that now God is favorably predisposed towards us. Do you know that your father, your heavenly father, looks at you and delights to show you favor, delights to pour out blessing upon you? That's how great the exchange is. It's not just that he withholds punishment from you now. It's that he's predisposed to bless because the curse was taken and blessing was given. Does that make sense? That's, it's deeply different to think about God as one who should punish you, but withholds it because Christ has taken the punishment. That's rich 
But it's a whole nother thing to say, not only does he withhold punishment, but now I have become the object of his favor. Not just neutrally predisposed towards me as, okay, I won't punish you. I won't penalize you. But now I am favorably disposed towards you. I delight to bless you. I delight to pour out favor upon you. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. Your kid doesn't just need you to be neutral towards them. Your kid needs you to be favorably disposed towards them. And you know what it's like to feel that love if you're a parent. You know what it's like to say, I want to bless you. I delight to to show you favor. I have more favor for you than I have for anybody else because you're mine. You belong to me. You're my kid. And that's exactly what the cross has worked in this great work of substitution. So as we look more closely at the cross of Jesus over the next three weeks, church family, as I said, our goal is singular. It's that we would treasure the cross of Christ, the pinnacle of his work, that we'd see it more clearly, that it would refract the light of God in such a way that it becomes clearer to us and more glorious to us. And as we come towards Good Friday and Easter, I hope you will see it with me as we go on this journey together for the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your work. We thank you, Jesus, that you were our willing substitute as we saw in your word. And Father, we thank you that you were willing to send your son to give him up, your scriptures say, to give him up for us all. It was no small thing. It wasn't just the son who bore the weight of the atonement. It was you as well, Father. And so we pray that you give us eyes to see, that we'd be enriched in our understanding of your cross, this central act in all of human history. And I pray for our friends who are considering the nature of that cross, whether it's atoning work can apply to them, that you would help them to see that it absolutely can and that they would yield to you and see that you uh, invite them into your family forever. So Father, would you now receive our praises? We wanna sing to you. Um, May our hearts be full and overflowing and may our singing come from that place. Great, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing to close our time.